1: And welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership podcast, brought to you by Intelligence Squared. I'm Chris Hurst, author of No Bullshit Leadership, and in my day job, I'm global CEO of Havas Creative. Leadership is difficult, but not complicated. In this podcast series, I want to help you cut through the bullshit and get to the heart of modern leadership, which, put simply, is the power to get stuff done and make stuff happen. In each episode, I'm joined by a different, inspirational leader who is doing just that, leading change in their worlds of business, sport, or politics. My guest today is the journalist and author Philip Collins. Phil has written two books about politics, was chief speechwriter to former Prime Minister Tony Blair, and before that was director of the centrist think tank The Social Market Foundation. His first career was as an investment banking analyst In the city of london his most recent book to be clear a style guide for business writing is a call to arms urging businesses to use language with clarity and meaning and cut out the buzzwords obfuscation and waffle it's a lucid entertaining and practical guide for anyone who cares about language to help them frankly cut out the bullshit and improve their business Thank you so much, Phil, for joining us this evening. No, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Really, really looking forward to it. So, Phil, let's get going. Uh, the best communicator you've ever seen in person? Uh, Tony Blair. I did. I did. I wrote down what I thought the answers were going to be, and I did sketch that. Could have been Bill Clinton, but but
0: I, I don't actually think Clinton was as good as most people do. I may come back to that.
1: The best piece of advice you've ever been given? Um... Make it shorter. And my next question is the best, your one piece of advice for anybody wanting to write more clearly. Is that the same?
0: Well, it, it, it is very good advice, um, it, but, but, but if you just want one piece of advice for every, anybody is spend a lot of time working out what you're trying to say in a sentence before you start. You won't go very badly wrong if you've made the effort to clarify what you're trying to say. Almost all speeches go wrong because there are too many things going on, and they don't quite know what it is they're trying to get at. So simplify it enormously, simplify it to the point where you think it's simplistic, and then you're ready. Do you think that's
1: true of, um, let's keep it to business writing, or or, or even political writing in general, do you think that's true of writing as well as speaking?
0: Yes, I do, I do. And I don't really see the distinction between the two. I mean, obviously, there is a distinction. But the thing that makes for good speakers is so much what makes for good writing that, that mm. most speakers are good because they've got good things to say. You can't really polish and deliver wonderfully something which is intrinsically badly written. You can make it better, of course, and it's better to do it well rather than badly. But but the audience will 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 tell. The audience won't be fooled by complete nonsense, and that's not to say that the the good content has to be highly rational because there are other reasons why speakers are persuasive. Emotion and character, two crucial components of being very persuasive. But an audience needs something. And if your content is nonsensical, then it doesn't matter how dramatically effective you are, you're not going to persuade them. You're not going to win them over. So I do think the two things join. I think clarity of language, clarity of writing and clarity of diction are all part of the same thing. Just as I think writing, and what what once upon a time is called statecraft, but today in business terms will be called strategy, mm. are also the same thing. I find all the time, and the reason I wrote this book, is that I'm called in quite often to be a writer for a company, and it is impossible to write really well when the thinking that has gone into it is itself faulty. Yeah. You, know, you, you just can't, it's not possible. And therefore, the writing process, which is to say the thinking, needs to go back a stage further and it needs to begin.
1: So it's almost the the foundations. You can't build a, you can't put a solid structure on shaky foundations.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because what is good writing other than clear thought well expressed? Mm. That's what it is. You've got a clear thought. I'm trying to tell you something rather than nothing. And I'm trying to say it in a way that you can understand. And if I fail to communicate to you, then that's my fault. The failure is mine. It's not good enough for me to blame you as a stupid audience. Yes. You know, and I, I wouldn't be there to be so rude. But, um, but even, even if I thought that, I, I'd be wrong because the task is one of communication. And if I have not communicated, then I failed in my task.
1: So let's, let's go back to where it all began for you. So you've talked a lot about the influence of the Church of England on your early life and career in politics, particularly the language of the fabulous King James Bible. What was it about? That language that made you fall in love with communication, language, writing. It's
0: rhythm, it's rhythm, and it's poetry. It's the cadence. It's it's all the music. It's not the words. It's the music, and a lot of beautiful language is just is musical. Mm-hmm. And I read a lot of poetry, not not for the content, and not because I want to quote it, uh, because that tends to be a bit pretentious in business <laughs> speeches. But <laughs> yeah. I'm reading for the for the music, to so to get the kind of rhythms. The other beauty of poetry, and it's true of the King James Bible, is that it packs so much in. If you look at a a paragraph of um, the authorised version of the Bible, there's so much in there. They're saying so much so quickly because it's evocative language and it's pictorial language. It's visual. You see things when you read it. And that's a, a big lesson that I try and take into business writing, which tends to be abstract and numerical and dry. You've got to have something in it that I can see because
1: it evokes so much more. It's very efficient language, isn't it? All the more. I mean, I, I'm not an expert on the subject. I'll just caveat it with that. But uh, uh, my understanding is also it wasn't done by one person. I mean, it's what I'm sure they didn't call it like call it this, but it's what we would now call a committee. It? I mean, isn't it? Isn't that all the more remarkable that it's so it was so consistent? It
0: is. It is a remarkable book, and it's kind of an interesting philosophical question who who is the author hmm. you know i wrote wrote well, es- an essay on this actually i thought well it's a kind of book of essays and, but there's an editor and who's the editor because hmm. where do you file the bible on your shelves you know i i i, I haven't got a section that's big enough for like religious textbooks and, hmm. and what is it anyway and i decided it was a book of essays and that the editor should be god so i filled it under g <laughs> so that's where it sits on my bookshelves okay good good to know
1: there's a, lot, there's a lot resting on that, that claim. I know. <laughs> there is. There is. Now, I'm going to move on. Is the want? Is the sort of love? Let's say of persuasive or even just beautiful. Let's say language. Ultimately, why you ended up working with politicians? Well, it seems a sort of strange destination in a way. Um, the, yes. the one
0: thing which which unites everything I've done is is writing and composition. I've always loved writing. And I've always, I've, I mean, the one thing you didn't mention of what I've done is I did a doctorate in political philosophy. And philosophy teaches you clarity. It's a way of refining arguments so that you you recognize that if I think more of this, then I have to think less of that. And it teaches you a discipline of uh-huh. thought. And I those two things, the discipline of thought and then the clarity of expression, are what always entice me about any discipline, really. And and that's been the thread and so that's the thing i bring i suppose if i've got anything that i offer to either the politicians or the business people it's that capacity uh, not to be taken in by the language that they use and there's an awful lot of language which is common to politics or common to business which is essentially a cover for the fact that the thought process isn't very good Mm. you know it's i mean you learn about this yourself i mean it's I mean, the point I'm making is essentially the same point you're making, uh, which is that there's a a lot of this stuff isn't really describing a genuine strategic uh, attempt to understand the world or even a strategic objective. It's just a a kind of cloak to make us feel better. And there's so much language like that. And I try and get rid of it. And I'm in the lucky position where being brought in as an outsider with certain credentials in the field, I can say, look, this is rubbish. Yeah. I I don't use the rude word that you use on the cover of your book because I'm much more decorous than you.
1: Because you want to get some more work later on down the track. I do. I do. And so you mentioned Tony Blair right at the start. Um, I'm fascinated by the process of writing for somebody else. How does that work? It it honestly works in as
0: many different ways as there are people. Mm. So you have to fit it into the pattern and the rhythm of the person. And so, there are, in practical terms, there's lots of different ways it works. But the task that you've got each time is essentially the same, which is you've got to capture them. You're not you're not trying to mimic them. You're not trying mm. to do a, an impression of them because that would that would seem very peculiar. And again, an audience will sniff that. They'll, they'll tell if you're doing self parody. Mm. The, the audience will, yeah. will immediately uh, notice that. So, and sometimes too, you're trying to move somebody. So you, you're trying to Have it within their voice and within their frame and within the rhythms of how they talk, but at the same time you're trying to gently shift that because we're creating a character when you when you're particularly if you're standing up and doing a speech, you are a character and the character just happens to be yourself, but it's not the same as just being yourself. That's terrible advice. To say, when you go out onto the podium, I'll just be yourself. Because it's a really unusual circumstance to go and stand and speak for 25 minutes uninterrupted to a group of people. There's no being yourself, because that's not what I do normally at home. I mean, maybe you do.
1: Not often. Not often. I end up
0: at the (laughs) breakfast table if Chris (laughs) comes and delivers another 25
1: minutes. I only do it once a week.
0: But most of us don't. And so we've got to create a kind of character that can do that, which is simultaneously yourself. It's like a one-times-five version of yourself. You know, it's an yeah.
1: enhanced version of yourself. And, yeah. and finding that is, is the task, and it's harder yeah. than it seems. And so is that the process you go through to find somebody else's voice? I mean, my slightly cheeky question that I've got down here is, you know, is it really all just Philip Collins speaking?
0: Well, if it is, I haven't done it very well. Yeah. It, sometimes it is, yes. Sometimes it is, partly because you haven't got time yep. to to really get to know someone and you've just got to get something out there which yep. is well thought through and, and yep. clear. So, yes, there are times when it is that, but that's not that's not the optimal. How it should be, yeah. No, it's not really. You've not really mm-hmm. done it properly mm-hmm. if that's the case. Um, and you've got to try and, like, for example, if you were to tell a story or you have some sort of reference or some sort mm-hmm. of metaphor from sporting life or something Mm. you obviously want those things to be pertinent to the person who's saying them not Mm. to me it's no good my background being turning up in all the speeches not least because then every ceo i write for has the same bunch of references. (laughs) references. That's <laughs> exactly. It's really yeah. remarkable how everyone in British business really likes
1: the poetry of Philip Larkin. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and they've all been to Hayden Bridge. That's yeah. a, an in-joke in for the audience there, I'm afraid, so <laughs> look it up. Um, so let's, cut, let's move to the book. That's a, that's a good segue. Um, is there a particular catalyst, let's say, for why you wrote it now? Do you think that business language has become worse in recent years, or is there a sort of a just gradual decline, or has it always been bad? No it hasn't
0: always been bad, and that's what um that's what intrigued me. Uh, I wanted to find out when it went bad and why uh, the catalyst was um it's been bad for quite a long time and the catalyst has been working with a bunch of businesses and in, in, in there was one particular moment when I thought that I've really got to investigate this I was with a bunch of senior corporate executives from a company I won't say which because I because they because they weren't worse than anyone else they, in fact they yes. were typical and that's why I was interested and I was with them for a couple of days and the thing that really intrigued me about them was they talked complete rubbish all the time absolute <laughs> business jargon all the time but the thing that makes that interesting is that they were otherwise really smart they were <laughs> clever outside of the business hours they were interested in the world they were well informed they were fun you know they were they were smart people yeah and I thought that's very interesting If this bunch of people were all idiots, then that would be the explanation for why they talk such weird language. Well, they're idiots. That's not very interesting. But they weren't at all idiots. They were really smart, clever people. And that intrigued me a lot. Why do these really clever people talk like that when they're on duty? And the reason why this is so attractive is that, of course, it makes... If I sound like that, I sound like I've got some mysterious... Capability yeah. that you haven't got and yeah, I yeah. can make you feel slightly less clever than you are because i'm speaking in a way you don't speak, and then of course, if, if you then join a company and you're a young person making your way in the world and everybody talks like that, well you'd be mad not to everybody joins in and everybody mimics it so, and so the jargon is comfortable, it feels good, it feels like a professional code
1: so so it's sort of a bit about inclusion and a bit about exclusion in a funny yes.
0: way. Yes. yes, it is. It's both yes. of those things at once, absolutely. Yeah. Because it's like you know any kind of um, internal code, it, it binds us together. because yes. We all yes. speak like this. And I'm part of this tribe because I speak the internal language. But by the same token, absolutely, it excludes those people who aren't members of the club. You know, I've got my access to this voodoo language and you haven't. And therefore, I'm cleverer than you, and, yes. or at least I know this stuff. And I think it partly comes about through there not being a body of knowledge. You know, Business isn't a profession in the way that, say, medicine is a profession, which is to mm. say there's an explicit body of knowledge that one must learn and know before yeah. you can practice. And you have a license to practice when you've demonstrated you've mastered that body of, lang- of knowledge. That's obviously not true in business, which is a, in a sense, a more difficult thing. It's more various, and so we've we've manufactured this professional code in order to replace the fact that it's it's really just a sort of macabre like discipline where you know twenty shillings and three pence in and twenty shillings out result happiness. Yes, that's that's business.
1: The implied, if if not explicit, I suppose, risk in what you're saying. If you if you simply learn the language. <laughs> you can bluff your way in almost. You learn the language and you don't have to do all that foundational clarity of thinking of what are we actually trying to do gets pushed to one side.
0: Well, up to a point you can, yes. I mean, Mm. it certainly helps you and you can certainly go a long way without ever saying anything which which any normal human being could understand. That's certainly Mm. true. Mm. I think eventually you get found out. I think eventually there is a truth in the world Mm. and there is in business, uh, there's a fact of life Intrudes eventually because you know when your fortunes of your company are translated into the language and currency of numbers on your balance sheet and your P well, e and L, sure, they are what they are, and uh, no no amount of what you that rude word you would have, would apply <laughs> is actually going to make a significant difference but, when that. So there is there is underneath it a truth about things, and that that's actually very useful in trying to argue to business people they would be better off being clear, because the, the clarity of the truth is going to get them in the end.
1: I absolutely agree with that. And But to go back, again, I'm, I'm going to think, I think I'm going to paraphrase, but one of your opening kind of arguments was a link between clarity of thought and clarity of communication. If you can distill it into a sentence, you know, really, really, really spend time working out what it is you're trying to say, or therefore, I think in a business context, do. Because often th- this is ultimately about doing things, right? Um and I suppose leaving aside the sort of the issue around jargon, that issue around clarity um ultimately does influence your ability to do the task that you need to do in business. Yes, it right? does it does it it um it is first the definition of what that task
0: is, mm-hmm. and then it's absolutely' is the definition of how to go about it. I've, we, my company does a lot of analysis of mission statements and purpose and all that stuff. Yeah. And my God, the confusion that is rife in these things because, you know, really there are only three questions. It's who are we? You know, what, mm-hmm. what was the point of us? Why are we here at all? And, and what kind of values yeah. do we bring? What will we do and what we do? Our values. Yeah. Then there's um, what do we want? What's our objective? Obviously, we've got a long term objective and my series of shorter term ones. Yeah. And then thirdly, what are we are going to do? So what are the things we're now going to do in pursuit of that objective, which are consistent with who we are? That's it. Look, that's it. Yeah. I've, written, I've written your mission statement, and you don't need yeah. the rest of it. And yet there's incredible confusion around them. And I think that that shows that it absolutely is, as you said in your question, that thinking and writing are essentially the same process. And clarity is very important, I think, for the running of the business. However, there's a caveat to that, which is that Sometimes clarity exposes conflicts. Another thing that jargon and bad writing does is it obscures conflicts. If you if if we disagree on mm-hmm. something, and, and yet yeah, yes. we which is likely, yeah. And then if we then take that disagreement up a level of abstraction, it's possible for us to pretend that we're in agreement because we yep. never air the real conflict that's underneath it. And clarity is needed to expose what's really at stake. Now, there are many times, both in business and in politics, when having worked out what the real conflict is, it's perfectly reasonable decision to think, I'm not going to have that today. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to expose that just now. We're not ready for that. We are going to muffle that one for a bit because that's mm-hmm. a good piece of business strategy. But if we're going to be boring and unclear, let's at least do it on purpose bad language doesn't permit us to do that. It obscures it. There's loads of examples in politics where we use language in a very vague way in order to pretend that
1: we agree. Yes. And it can be very useful. But, but it's therefore only, I suppose it's useful if you're doing it deliberately in that context, isn't it? I mean, if you're sort of doing it by accident, uh, then that seems... <laughs> If If you're doing it, you you just don't know what you're doing. Yeah, well, well, yes, exactly. And and people don't. People don't know what they're doing. You
0: know, I'll I'll give you an example now from politics. People talk about frontline workers all the time. Yeah. I mean, what? what, what? No one normal says that, do they? No, frontline workers. What does that mean? Do you mean a nurse or do you mean a doctor? They could always specify what they mean. The reason originally they didn't specify was because in the health service, there are a series of demarcation disputes between doctors, consultants, and GPs, and nurses, and midwives. And in speeches, if you say one but not the other, or if you say two of those four and not the others, you then immediately get a nasty letter fired off from the others. So you invent a term which slightly vaguely encompasses them all so that no one will shout at you. And it's a deliberate piece of mystification which is fine for that purpose, but it then passes into the general currency, yes. general usage, and we end up losing the specificity of the language. And Good language is always precise, and it's always specific. And it's a, a lot of business
1: language is, is neither of those two things. We're bouncing between business and, and, and politics. Um, is there a, and, and I dare I say, red thread? That's a nice nice bit of jargon there, uh, is there a red thread, Phil, between poor communications all communicators in business and in politics? Yeah, the the,
0: the principles are essentially the same. The yeah. functions are sometimes different. And, um, of course, in politics, your audience is wider. You know, you can't yeah. choose your audience in in politics in the way that you can to some extent in business. A business has a certain part of the marketplace it's aiming at. You are, in a sense, choosing the demographic of your uh, that you're talking to you may not be talking to the public principally anyway in business you may mm. be talking to your suppliers or to to other yeah. companies so so there are differences and um politics is harder because the metrics are more difficult as well it's harder to know whether a political piece of communication has worked because mm. the the measurement of whether it's successful is is much much difficult more hard to get hold of so they are different the the two things do have differences, but I think in business, there's another reason why a business really, I think, needs to be clear. And it's because if you're a friend of business, which I am, the whole, the book kind of ends with with this, that it is easy to caricature business as doing something which is, you know, in some sense malign. And business over the last 25 years, past 30 years, has gone back, in fact, to the Seaborn and Roundtree view that the business is there for more than mere shares of value, more than mere production of dividend payments. A business has a whole series of reasons for its existence. And this is a good argument, and it's true. Mm -hmm. And so we've got no chance of getting that argument across into the general public. It's very important that we do. If we're prosecuting that argument in a language that nobody speaks, we need to be clear because we've got something important to say. And we have yeah. got, no matter what your business is, every business has does have an interest in mm-hmm. speaking to the public so that the legitimacy of liberal democracy and capitalism, to put it mm-hmm. in a very elevated way, yeah, yeah. is, yeah. is upheld.
1: It's very important
0: agree. that it is. And so I, I do agree. think there's a I think there's a big noble thing behind this as well. It's not just the pedantry of someone who loves language. I yes. think there's although it's certainly that, but it's not just that. <laughs> I think there is a genuinely a serious point behind it, which takes me all the way back to, to where the round trees came in and where the
1: debate in, in a really good way has got back to. I'm going I'm to go back even further beyond the round trees now and say, do you think that the principles of effective communication are different today than they were 10, 50, 2000 years ago?
0: The methods change all the time. So obviously social media yes. gives you challenges and problems mm. that you didn't encounter 20 years ago. So so yes, to that extent, there are different ways. And there's actually some very good, a good book, in fact, which traces the American presidency through the different media. From the time mm. when Lincoln used to employ people to go and stand at, the spe- at his speech and shout to the crowd because there was no amplification right. in the arena yeah. and they're speaking outside. And then of course you get the wireless and then you get the, the television. And then now you we, now we're online. So yes, absolutely there are differences as we, we progress through time. But the fundamentals remain the same. So if you I think rhetoric and, and communication is the only discipline, I think I think the only discipline where the insights of Aristotle and Cicero absolutely still hold. The science of that day is Useless and the so is in fact, the literary criticism and then the dramatic thought, really, mm. but, but the rhetoric is the same and and that if you you can go draw a direct line from Aristotle to Twitter, which is to say that if you get your central proposition sorted out and ready, your one hundred and forty or your two hundred and eighty characters mm. and that's clear and right, and that will be a good piece of communication and actually, I don't lament social media. Lots of people do in this trade, but I don't because, in fact, what it's forcing you to do is to be clear, and it's also bringing far more people into that conversation. And so the more people that are in that conversation, the more the onus is on the elite communicators to speak in an ordinary way. So it does make different demands of you, the different... Uh, technological media, but the fundamental questions of communication remain the same, I
1: think. So, yes, I suppose my observation on the, the, the forcing people to be clearer, you'd like to think it was forcing people to be clearer. I'm not sure whether I actually see uh, evidence of people oh, being no. clearer. No, I, I, didn't, I didn't mean to say that I think that is in fact happening. People you,
0: are you... frightened to be clear, you see. It, it's scary. Yes. If you're yeah. clear, there's there's less, less of a place to hide. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I understand that too. I mean, I, I'm not, I mean, you can have fun at the expense of, of poor communication. And in the book I do, but I do understand that sometimes it can feel very exposed to say something stark and clear and social media amplifies that risk because you, you know, you're only one bad tweet away from something yes. terrible happening to you. So the temptation to be cautious and risk-free is, is an obvious one. And I know I, yep. we have to take that seriously.
1: And, and, and so in the book, you, you reference great communicators through the ages, Aristotle to Bill Gates, Steve Jobs to Seneca. Who do you think are, either in the world of business or, or in politics, who do you think are the most effective, the best communicators today?
0: Today? Um, yeah, well, it's, I mean... It doesn't feel like a golden age. It's not a golden age, no. But then it's harder to do it now than it used to mm-hmm. be. You know that the, the, when there were golden ages, but that's because it was easier then. And right. I do th- I do think it's got harder. The, the, in the 19th century, they sold all the easy stuff, and they <laughs> left us with the hard stuff. So if you were Disraeli, you could you could point out that there was a epidemic of cholera, and it was absolutely within your compass as the prime minister to build the sewers, which they mm-hmm. duly did, and therefore yeah. the credentials and authority that come from saying, I'm going to do this and then doing it, is part of what made you a good speaker. It's why I think there's one puzzling thing about rhetoric is that has there ever yet been a great speech about climate change? I don't think there has. Mm-hmm. And I think that's structural. I think that's because whoever you are, even if you were the vice president of the United States, Mal Gord did some mm-hmm. extremely good speeches about climate change, but even he didn't have the executive authority to make it happen. And that's quite a big part of something being memorable and good is a global problem is really difficult to speak about with great authority because you can diagnose it really brilliantly, but you haven't got the capacity to change it. And that's the, all of the great speeches in the anthologies yeah. are done by the person who can
1: change the thing. I, I think that's a great way of thinking about it because, it, but what it makes me, I agree with you on the climate change point, but. I'm sure that I and many people listening to this can think of many many things that we could just get on and do a bit better the op- but if only somebody would get on and do them um you know I mean let's not listen there's a load, plenty of things just in this country but the, the 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 idea of great communication being saying it and then doing it feels like there's an absence of doing in the political space possibly at the moment yeah, there is. But I do think it's hard. Although, I mean,
0: let me give you a, a controversial example, two controversial examples. Two um, political communicators who I think are good in recent years are Donald Trump and Boris Johnson. I was going to ask you about Donald Trump, actually. Yeah. Well, he's good, isn't he? I mean, w- I mean, he must be effective,
1: isn't he? He's effective, isn't he? Yeah, that's you? what I mean. Actually, back
0: back I'm just using it as a sort of, in a, yes. in a way, in a neutral term. I mean, yes. I mean, for, for avoidance of doubt, he's, he's not my side of politics, and I thought he was an absolutely egregious president of the United States. But just- I think that was taken a dread. Yeah. But, and in fact, the reason he's good is precisely because he must be good at something if he's so utterly hopeless at rational arguments, which he was and is. He doesn't make rational arguments. 90% of corporate communication, of business communication is, rightly enough, highly rational. The bit that corporate communication doesn't usually have is any emotional connection or any sense of character. It's really boring and it's very samey. Trump is the opposite. He had virtually no rational content at all, but he had an emotional connection that people out in the Rust Belt felt that he understood what they were going through, remarkably given who he is, but they did. And that is a skill and that is a communication skill. And he also had great character. Everything he did was Trump-like. And that's, mm. again, that's a skill. Not everybody has that. Mm. It might be something you simply have rather than something you learned, but you can get better at it. But he had it. And so mm. that's, and Johnson has, Johnson in that sense is is similar. I don't push the comparison with Johnson-Trump very far. Nothing is exaggerated. But in this Sorry. respect, I think they're similar in that Johnson has very Johnson-like characteristics all the time. He's in character mm. all the while, and he also makes emotional connections. And his language is visual. He's, mm. he, he says things which are memorable. They might be mm. awful, like the pepper Pig at the CBI, mm. but mm. the very fact that I can instantly remember, you can remember it, it. yes, I don't remember many speeches to the CBI, even ones I've written myself. So <laughs> it's, but the fact I remember it tells you that he's
1: successful and that he's good. Yeah. I've got one final one for you, Phil, which is who should hire Philip Collins next? Who's most in need? Well, obviously, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> you had to put them in order. <laughs> yeah, everybody. Well, I think the,
0: the, in the political world, I think the biggest need, in fact, is the Democrat Party in the United States. I think that they lack an argument. I don't think they have any clear sense. Joe, I know the people who work for Joe Biden, and they say that they are the only speech writers in the world who try to make the person they're writing for say less rather than more. Because Biden is always tempted to go off on one and say a lot, and they're trying to rein him in. So I think the Democrat Party is, has a major need. but And also the obvious place in the corporate world is the, the tech companies, which are going through mm. a transition from being infant, you know, young companies, mm. um, sparky companies, to now into kind of late adolescence, early yeah. adulthood, and obviously, the immense power that they have just—they've become public companies in a way yeah. they didn't ever think they were. They've
1: also got loads of money as well, Phil. So you can you can bang up the fees. You can bang up the fees sky high. Well, I wasn't going to be so vulgar. Well, that's a great place to end. Thanks, Phil, so much for joining us. What a fascinating chat. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to rate and review No Bullshit Leadership on Apple Podcasts. It lets us know what you think and helps others to find the show. Thank you.